Well, thank you, Joel, and good evening to you all. Over these uh, past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Ezra, and we have reached the seventh in our preaching workshop series on Ezra and Nehemiah. Six sermons on Ezra, and now the first of four on Nehemiah. And these four sermons are going to be thematic, and there they are on the screen for you. Four sermons from the book of Nehemiah, which are going to be thematic. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to the very first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. You'll find it on page 485 in the Pew Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 1, page 485. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Back in 1984, Bob Geldof went home after a bad day at the office and turned on his television set. The news was on, and Michael Burke was doing a filmed report from Ethiopia. And a disastrous famine was killing many thousands of people. Geldof later wrote, I felt disgusted. Enraged and outraged. 
But more than all of that, I felt deep shame. He knew he had to do something, but what could he do? He did what he could. He decided to try and raise money using his contacts in pop music. He produced a record called Do They Know It's Christmas? A record which went straight to number one. And he then proceeded to organise probably the most famous live music event ever called Band Aid at Wembley. Millions of pounds were raised to relieve the misery in Ethiopia. Nehemiah too was concerned about people. The news he received didn't come, and this thing is playing up, apologies. The news he received didn't come from a television station. It came from his brother Hanani, who had arrived from Judah. But I imagine that just like Bob Geldof, he too felt disgusted, enraged, and outraged, as well as having that deep sense of shame. He knew that the dreadful state that Jerusalem was in was deeply dishonouring to God. And the plight of the people pained him. He had to do something. But what could Nehemiah do? Like Bob Geldorf, he did what he could. He did what came naturally. Perhaps I should first set the scene for the benefit of those who haven't been with us for our studies in Ezra. Because the book of Nehemiah opens around 445 BC, many years after the exile, uh, sorry, many years after the elite and the educated among the people of Israel had been forced into exile under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It was the judgment of God that prophets like Jeremiah had warned about for years. In 538 BC, as Jeremiah had prophesied, Cyrus allowed around 50,000 Israelites to return to their devastated homeland and their beloved but now virtually destroyed Jerusalem. Some exiles returned, but many did not. Lots of Jews had landed good jobs and built attractive homes. On top of that, their homeland was virtually in ruins and harassed by many political enemies in the area who didn't like the idea of a rebuilt Jerusalem. Some attempts had been made to rebuild, but it was slow going. Finally, just a few years before the time of Nehemiah, at the request of what we could call local warlords, Artaxerxes had ordered a halt to all rebuilding efforts. Jerusalem looked desolate, like an abandoned construction site. Despite their newfound comfort, however, many of these exiles with good jobs in Persia still loved their homeland. They dreamed of a rebuilt Jerusalem with its temple and prophets like Haggai, as we learned from Tim Wark last Sunday morning, and Zechariah fueled those dreams. And that's really where the story of Nehemiah begins. Nehemiah's brother and some friends came to visit from Jerusalem and, of course, Nehemiah wanted to know how things were. They reported that the homeland was in great trouble. 
A sense of shame overwhelmed many who lived there. The walls were broken down and the gates burned. Now in those days that was a very particular thing for those who lived in that part of the world. A city without a wall and a gate had no defence. And with no defence it was useless and open to all kinds of abuse and attack. And when Nehemiah receives the news about Jerusalem and its people, his first reaction is to weep and to mourn over the continuing disgrace of the situation. But to weep for the people in Israel. And is it not essential that our interest in God's work be people-centered? Here is a man looking out in compassion at the plight of others. Throughout Christian history, men and women have shared Nehemiah's concern. The trafficking of slaves disturbed the consciences of people like Thomas Clarkson and William Wilberforce. And they campaigned passionately until the horrible practice was abolished. During the Industrial Revolution, Lord Shaftesbury worked tirelessly for improvements in factories where women and children worked under appalling conditions. Dr. Bernardo, George Mueller, C.H. Spurgeon were greatly burdened for the needs of orphaned children and took practical steps to provide them with food, shelter and security. And I suppose more recently we have the example of Mother Teresa showing incredible concern for millions of children in India. Nehemiah recognized the shameful reality and responded with tears. He wept. And when you think about it, surely the typical response would have been to blame the people. They've been back here for how long and still haven't built the wall? Who's in charge? But in Nehemiah's response, there seems no sense of blame, only tears of compassion. He wept. And as we know, he wasn't the last person to weep over Jerusalem's troubles. During the last week of his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus looked over the rebellious city of Jerusalem and found it impossible to hold back tears. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, it says... When he was come near, he beheld the city, the city of Jerusalem, and he wept over it. Nehemiah was called to build the wall, but first he had to weep over the ruins, and he cared enough to weep. But think about that for a moment. Is that really the first thing you and I do when a problem comes? When an opportunity arises, when something has to be done. In all honesty, I have to admit that my tendency is to act first and pray later. Sometimes my prayers have more to do with asking God to bless and support what I've already decided to do. Rather than to pray through the problem before any action, like Nehemiah did. And there's a huge difference. Asking God to bless my actions and decisions means that I'm at the centre of things. I'm in control. I'm the main player. I've got the answers. 
And if there's anything clear about Nehemiah, it's that in his grief and pain, he believed that this was a God matter. It all depended on God. But I want you to notice too that Nehemiah was not only concerned about people, but Nehemiah was committed to prayer. For Nehemiah, it was simply the most natural thing to do. To speak with the God of Israel, to express his concern about the people and the city, and to receive God's comfort and God's guidance. Nehemiah chapter 1, as we see uh, in the weeks that precede, contains the first of about a dozen prayers of one kind or another that we find right throughout this book. Prayer is Nehemiah's instinctive response. Prayer is at the very center of Nehemiah's life. And there's a great deal that we can learn about prayer as we look at that life, the life of Nehemiah. First of all, in verse 4, Nehemiah's prayer was sincere. His tears were genuine. He shows great empathy with the people in Jerusalem who were feeling lost and desperate. And we need to understand that Nehemiah was in quite a privileged situation in Susa. We learn from the last verse in chapter 1 that Nehemiah was cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, a position of some considerable influence. And you know, as you read that, it almost appears a kind of a throwaway, off-the-cuff statement, that very last sentence at the very end of chapter 1. But you know, when you think about it, it's actually very significant. Because as cupbearer, he was responsible for tasting the king's wine to safeguard against poisoning. So it's not surprising that he was usually a trusted official and a confidant of the king. As such, it might be slightly surprising that he was so concerned about what was going on at least a thousand miles away. Indeed, Nehemiah himself would have been born in captivity in Babylon and so had no real experience of living in Judah. Why should he risk his secure job with all of its comforts and all of its privilege and all of its security? But I believe as we look very closely at these verses, his tears are undoubtedly genuine. They're sincere. Remember, we're told that he mourns and fasts. He is totally serious about this. He is a godly Jew who is in tune with the heart of God. So he feels compassion for all of God's people and for Jerusalem. And as Christians, we too should be unashamed to weep for those of God's people who are suffering around the globe. We should be unembarrassed about shedding tears for the state of God's creation. If we are sincere and godly people, this should be happening without us even thinking about it. And I want to suggest that perhaps many of us in this past week shed more than a few tears for little Madeleine McCann and her family. And rightly so. Nehemiah wept. Jesus wept. Let us be equally sincere too as we are brought into tune 
with God's heart as we think through this prayer of Nehemiah. But we notice that not only was Nehemiah's prayer sincere, it was sacrificial. After all, he gave over a significant time to fasting from food. And I suggest that his fasting may have had several benefits. First, I think, as we've already seen, it highlighted his sincerity. But secondly, I believe it will have focused his mind upon the issues. It will also have freed time up for concentrated prayer. In those days, meals were leisurely, social affairs, which could take up to a couple of hours. I'm conscious, too, that that often can happen, even in the day and hour in which we live and eat. But fourthly, I also believe that it could have contributed to the very spiritual breakthrough in his dealings with Artaxerxes. I want to share with you this evening that one of the most encouraging memories that I have about Windsor Baptist in recent years was our last day of prayer and fasting. Do you remember it? For me, there is something quite special about a group of people meeting corporately to focus on specific needs. I still remember being encouraged by hearing voices I never heard before in prayer in Windsor. To sense the concern, the passion, that God would specifically guide us in terms of the needs of our young people and the development of this site. Those were the major focus at that time. But other things were shared and other topics were covered in that day of prayer and fasting. Last Sunday evening, James asked a very challenging question. Are there occasions when we should be fasting and praying? Big decisions, problems. Where does fasting fit in? Where does prayer fit in? Can I suggest two issues, two issues in particular? There may be more in answer to those questions. The appointment of David's replacement. And the development of the site here at Malone Avenue. Is it time we thought again about prayer and fasting? And I know that fasting from food is not an easy discipline. And for some not a healthy option. But it must be viewed as sacrificial. And it can have a great impact Yet abstaining from food for a while is not the only kind of useful fast in the day and age in which we live. I believe we'll be greatly blessed if, for example, we fast from watching the television and give that saved time over to prayer. Or maybe it's a case of fasting from the use of the computer or from sports or hobbies. I'm trying very hard not to look at my wife at this stage. But coming to church, coming to the church prayer meeting on a Wednesday evening or once each month on a Saturday morning may really be a sacrifice for some. But prayer is meant to be sacrificial. Just look at the life of Nehemiah. And that's not all that we see as we look at this man's prayer. We see that Nehemiah was persevering in prayer. 
In verse 4, Nehemiah tells us that for some days he prayed before the king of heaven. And in verse 7, he appeals to God to hear my prayer as I pray day and night. He perseveres and persists in prayer, just as Jesus taught we should. Do you remember how he told us in Luke chapter 11, verse 8, that we should keep knocking at the door because of the man's importunity, as the authorized version had it. He was heard. Yet how often do we complain that God hasn't answered our prayer when we have actually spent very little time speaking to him? In our culture today, we want everything to be instant. In fact, we're used to so much being instant. We don't expect to have to wait for anything or to have to ask for something more than once. And I believe that this story encourages Each of us to think again. And the truth is that we need to persevere in prayer. Just as Nehemiah did. And when we look at what he says in this prayer, it's clear too that Nehemiah was penitent in prayer. He understands the need for confession. And isn't that picking up again the theme that Stephen picked up for us this morning? And Nehemiah is transparently honest about how his fellow countrymen, including his own ancestors, his own family, have sinned. But it's not just the sin of others that he highlights. He also acknowledges his own part in it all. He says, we, the people of Israel, have sinned. My ancestors and I have sinned. He confesses that not only the evil things that they have done, but he says we have wickedly acted wickedly against you, but he also points out the right things that they have failed to do. Or he admits we have not done what you commanded. The amazing thing about Nehemiah's confession is that he doesn't separate himself from God's sinful people. He wasn't part of the generation that was sent into exile. He's apparently a godly man. Yet he places himself in solidarity with them. And in verses 6 and 7, he confesses the sins of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my family and I have sinned. We have offended you deeply failing to keep your commandments. And in these verses, Nehemiah identifies himself with hundreds of years of coldness towards God, idolatry, and disobedience to the prophets God sent. He had a sense of corporate responsibility, which most of us lack today. The whole culture in which we live stresses individuality rather than community. It's their problem. It's his issue. And that's why it may strike us as a bit odd when in our public liturgical prayers of confession we confess to all kinds of sin that we personally have not committed. And we're clearly reminded of that here in Nehemiah 1 from verse 5 to the end of the chapter. 
These words are almost exactly the same words that Daniel prayed and the words we frequently use at the Lord's table. Let me just go back if I can get them. Okay. And there's the comparison. If you look at the verses in Nehemiah and look at the verses on the right, you'll recognize the verses from Daniel are very often the verses that we recite as we gather around the Lord's table. And it's the principle of corporate responsibility and it's very biblical. Jesus taught us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins, not just mine. In fact, the whole of the Lord's Prayer is prayed communally. Our Father, our daily bread, our sins. Nehemiah identified with the people for whom he was praying, assuming not only their difficult situation, but even their sinfulness. And the Bible teaches us to identify with the whole world in our prayers, taking on the burden of its sin as well as its need. And when we do that, we can never look at others' sins with smugness and self-righteousness. Such prayers teach us to be merciful, like the God to whom we pray, and avoid a pious, arrogant, and judgmental attitude. We as individuals and as a church need to be equally honest in prayer. Unless we recognize our sin and then repent as Nehemiah did, we certainly won't enjoy the full blessing that God wants to give us, and our growth may well be restricted. Surely, as a nation, that is a truth that we all need to take to heart. It will not have escaped your attention that laws are being passed in this country which appall and offend us. And I honestly believe that the church in this country and throughout the UK must be true to its God-given responsibility of praying on behalf of our nation following Nehemiah's lead. But perhaps, and most importantly of all, when we read this passage and read this prayer, we can see that Nehemiah was confident in God. His first words of prayer are words of exaltation. God is sovereign. He is the Lord of heaven. God is great. In fact, he is totally awesome. God is faithful to the covenant he has made with Israel and shows endless compassion. If you'd like to turn to page 183 in your pew Bible, you'll find that Nehemiah actually recalls the words of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 27 to 31. Look closely and think about the words that we read in Nehemiah 1. Deuteronomy 4.27 says, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, 
Then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. And for Nehemiah, God is in complete control and without equal. So who else should Nehemiah trust? So he has every reason to believe that God will have mercy upon his people and will help him as he seeks the support of Artaxerxes to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem. And so should we be confident in prayer. Because it is that same great and awesome, compassionate and sovereign God to whom we pray. And he is faithful to the covenant that he has made with us through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which we remember each time we gather around the communion table. So there should be no hesitation on our part in coming into his presence and bringing before him our prayer requests. Do you ever ask, how should I pray? What should I pray? What's involved in this discipline of prayer? Well, many years ago, I recall being introduced to a very helpful acrostic in relation to prayer. And at our recent Saturday morning uh, prayer meeting, I was reminded of this. And there it is. Acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Nehemiah's prayer here in chapter 1 uses three of these elements. But if you read through the entire book of Nehemiah, you'll find all of these elements are used in his remarkable prayer life. And we too can be confident as we come before God in prayer. But often we're not. And one of my greatest memories of working with SIM was a number of years ago when we introduced what was called PACE teams, prayer and cultural experience. These were groups of young people who were going out in teams and the only thing they wanted to do was to spend time with missionaries to watch them and pray with them. It was a strange thing for me because all the other teams that we've been involved in were doing something practical. And I remember this was the very first of PACE teams. And two people came to me after that team. And they said to me, you know, we had the most remarkable experience in terms of prayer. One of the things that we were being taught was to depend on God by prayer. Because by prayer has been, from the mission ever started, the motto of SIM. But as that little team gathered that particular morning, they, they began to think about what was ahead for the day. And the leader of that team was a guy called Jacques Weber. And Jacques was a, a real man, a real warrior in prayer. Quite a remarkable guy. And he said to the team that morning, he said, I want you to pray for something very specific. He said, we're going down into Delhi today, and I want to see if I can find somebody that I've been trying to make contact with. And they looked at them and they said, Jack, you're talking about Delhi. He said, yeah, I know that. But he said, we're going to pray about it anyway. But he said, I want to pick up this lady sometime during my time in Delhi. And so the team prayed and they set out. 
And the two people that I'm talking about were sitting in the back of a taxi and Jack was sitting beside the driver and he got the driver to drive around Delhi and he said, let's try down here. Let's try down here. Now this is like going to Belfast, north, east, south and west, trying to find somebody whose name you know but you don't know their face and you don't know their address. But Jack was very determined that the prayers were going to work. And after driving around for the best part of an hour, I remember the two young people said to me, we thought this guy was off the wall. How on earth do we find anybody here in Delhi? And close to giving up, they drove down, they turned into the street, and it was market day. And as they were driving down the street, they spotted this lady taking her shopping and opening the boot of the car to put it in. And Jack says, let's drive over and ask this lady if she happens to know her. They went down the window and said, we're looking for Mrs. So-and-so. We've been told she lives in this area. Would you have any idea where we might find her? And she turned around and she said to them, that's me. And that is one of the most remarkable stories that I've ever heard in answer to prayer. And if you want to know the full story in that, ask Peter Linus. Because Peter was one of the young people. There was Peter Linus and Joanne Cole. And Peter and Joanne went on our very first base team. I never forgot that story. One of the most remarkable stories of teaching young people what it is to pray and to pray with confidence. And every child knows what it is. There's one thing that will make any parent sit up and take notice. And it's these words, and those of us who are parents have heard it many, many times. But Daddy, you said. But Daddy, you said. And God simply cannot go back on his word. But it's more than that. Nothing so delights God as when we take his promises seriously in our prayers. God especially listens to us when we show we've been listening to him. When we pray God's promises, the Holy Spirit strengthens our faith and we begin to sense that assurance in our hearts that somehow, someway, sometime, God will answer our prayers according to the faithful promises he has given in his word. More than that, by praying the promises, we discover that our prayers don't just come from us but from the Holy Spirit's prompting. We discover that prayer begins with God, his promises, his character, and not us. But have a a look at the very last verse, verse 11. Because rather suddenly, at the very end of the prayer in verse 11, a strange request bursts from Nehemiah's lips and heart. He says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And you're almost tempted to ask, where on earth did this come from? After such a hefty or rather theological opening, it seems such a very small request. Well, I want to suggest that something happens to Nehemiah that frequently happens when we pray. I pray for something or someone And the realization begins to creep into my own heart and mind that I'm the one who's being called to act. I've prayed myself into partnership with God's own plan and purposes. How that realization came to Nehemiah gets explained very clearly, I think, in the next verse. 
At that time, I was cupbearer to the king. Now that might not sound like much, but in the Persian court, the cupbearer was no mere servant. He not only chose and tested the wine, often he was also chief of security and often one of the king's closest confidants. And this was the very same king, Artaxerxes, who a few years before had ordered the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem to be stopped. Suddenly, in prayer, it dawned on Nehemiah that God had placed him in the right place at the right time to do something really important. And as he sensed, really dangerous. But I love the way Nehemiah puts it to God. Grant me, Nehemiah, grant mercy in the sight of this man. It's not this king. It's not the great Artaxerxes. But this man, this human being who, like every other man, pulls his trousers on one leg at a time in the morning. Nehemiah's prayer to the great and awesome God had now placed everything and everyone else into perspective. This was just a man, another human being, under the God who rules human history. And when we read the story of how Nehemiah, the leader, and we'll be looking at that in later weeks, how he organized the Israelites into rebuilding the wall in the city of Jerusalem, It will be easy to get carried away by the wonderful teamwork that we witness or by the way in which Nehemiah overcomes opposition. But remember this. It started with much mourning and fasting and prayer. And I believe that God wants to build his church, his church worldwide and the church here in Windsor Baptist. And I believe that he will. But only when we have learned to be concerned about people, committed to prayer, confident in God. Let's keep those standards very much to the fore as we look for a new teaching pastor to replace David. And as we endeavor to know God's will and God's plan in relation to our new build here in Windsor. And let's not reach the end of our lives wondering what God might have done in us and through us if only we had been given more time to prayer.